Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Speaking about his birth, which we will be covering this morning, it's interesting that there isn't really anyone who really knows when Christ was actually born, right? Uh, Some have it in the spring, others place some early fall. But one thing's for sure, nobody really argues for December 25th. (laughs) We kind of, we know that. Um, What does matter, however, is that he, he did come, right? Prophecies were fulfilled, promise kept. Jesus has come. And evidently, it really didn't matter to God. It wasn't important to him that we knew the date. What mattered is he came. The question now remains for you and I is, what will we do about his coming? How will we live our lives because of the one whom the Father has sent? In John chapter 1, verse 1, Let's consider this for a moment. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so what the Apostle John is doing here, he's opening the door to one of the most profound mysteries of our faith, the eternal nature and divinity of Jesus Christ. The verse isn't just a beginning. It's really a declaration of the timeless existence of Jesus, the Word who was with God and is God. (laughs) Think about the massiveness of that statement, folks. Before the creation of the world, before the stars were hung in the sky, Jesus was there. He is not a creation of God. He is God. (laughs) An integral part of the divine Holy Trinity. This revelation, what it does is it elevates our understanding of Jesus from a historical figure to the eternal, omnipotent creator God. This is he who come, who has came. This is the one that we celebrate, hopefully not only today, but every single day of our lives. This is he who is to be the king of our hearts, the one who is to be everything to us. We are reminded of this from cover to cover in our Bibles. For example, consider the story of Esther. An amazing truth emerges from it, really. And an amazing truth that emerges in the king that thinks he's in charge, the king that thinks he rules the kingdom of Persia. And Haman, the villain of the story, it, it signs edicts, and sure enough, he does that with the, with the king's seal. But it is the Lord, isn't it, who is in ultimate, complete control. These others might think they are, but it is the Lord who is in control of the entire situation. This principal truth continues to be so true today. He's in control still. He's got this. And because he's got this, he's got us, right? This time of the year is an excellent time for us to ask ourselves this question. Will I focus on Jesus as the center of my life 
And will I cling to him regardless of the circumstances that I may face? Political corruption, religious compromise, economic crisis. Don't you know that these will always be on the front page, right? Always. But we must remember that our God is at work on every page. <laughs> Aren't you thankful? He is at work on every page. Although his picture may not ever appear, <laughs> he may seem hidden, but he is there. Church, he is always, always there. His fingerprints, when you stop and think about it, are all over the globe. And hopefully his fingerprints are all over your life. God promises to use our uncertain times to accomplish his purposes all around the world. And guess what? And deep within our very own lives. Jesus' birth was undoubtedly the most important event in all of history. Well, why? Because the world that he was born into was a world that was full and covered in darkness. And as a matter of fact, before you and I were ever born again, we were in darkness. We were in desperate need of some light. And aren't we thankful that Jesus is that light that we have needed? I'm so thankful. The, the world, you and I, needed some light. <laughs> and he came to be that very light as he is the light of the world. In Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles or your devices, you have to say that these days, right? Your Bible or devices. <laughs> Luke chapter 2, we have the birth of Christ story. I'm going to start at verse 4. It says, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Obviously, as I've said just a moment ago, this is letting us know and bringing us into the story of Christ's birth. The manger that is mentioned here, I just want to make mention of this, it probably isn't like the manger that we are used to seeing in paintings and that sort of thing, or maybe in media or in movies. In first century Bethlehem, it was more likely to have been a hewn-out stone that was used as a trough to feed animals. As a matter of fact, the word manger in the original language actually means trough just so you know, okay? Because a trough is mentioned, we know that Jesus was born in a stable or barn-type place that no doubt included with it barnyard-type animals. So there no doubt would have been cows and lambs and, and goats 
in that area. And by Christ being born in this type of setting, God was making a huge, grand statement, folks. An amazing statement was being made by his having his son born in that kind of situation. God, through his son, his precious little lamb, who came to be the light of the world, is saying... That never again would a lamb or a goat or a calf need to be sacrificed for the atonement of human sin, our sin. I am providing, God is saying, the once and for all sacrificial lamb. Never again would this ever have to happen. I, I see this being reinforced for us. And this is, I think, pretty cool to, to see and picking it up at verse 8. This whole idea of what God is doing, his grand statement being reinforced. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. Probably all we would be terrified, right? But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people today in the town of David. A savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Again, that, that trough that would have been used for the feeding of animals. Scholars tell us. This is interesting that these sheep outside of Bethlehem were more than likely probably sheep that were owned by the priests involved with the temple and the sacrifices that would have been used in the temple. You guys remember when Jesus went through the temple and he he uh, turned over tables and was scourging the place and was upset with what they were doing. Why was he? Because they were charging exorbitant prices for the animals that were to be used in, in, in sacrifice. And so it kind of coincides with this. And so those sheep that would have been outside Bethlehem could very possibly have been owned by these very priests. Also, the shepherds who were out there who kept watch over the sheep would not have been able to enter into the temple they would have been considered unclean according to the standards of the law. But here's what is so awesome about this that includes this statement that God is making to us. But who are the first to hear about the news of Jesus? Who are the first to hear about his birth? Well, it's the unclean ones. <laughs> The outcasts, the marginalized, those out there on the fringe, the ones who represent you and me. Isn't that amazing? Talk about amazing grace, right? And while the unclean shepherds represent us, the baby Jesus was there lying in that manger representing God. One day in an art class, as the teacher was going around the room looking at the various paintings that the children were doing, she asked a boy what he was painting. 
And the youngster said, I'm, I'm painting a picture of God. And the teacher kind of scratched her head a little bit and come back and says, but, but nobody knows what God looks like. And I love the kid's response. He says, you come back when I finish and then you will know. <laughs> Isn't that good? You will find out when I finish this painting. You see, church, with the arrival of the Lord Jesus in Bethlehem, it's like God took hold of a paintbrush and masterfully put onto the canvas of history what he himself was really, really like. The writer to the Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 puts it this way, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in which we are living, right, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, through the prophets, God has spoken a, a multi-layered word, weaving his character and his nature throughout the pages of the Old Testament. But in Bethlehem, God spoke in a personified word. The long-awaited Messiah, the light of the world, had appeared. And in that tiny little baby, God made known his reality. Just think, in that Bethlehem manger lay God. Whoa. Wiggling his toes, maybe even his hands, nursed by Mary, probably rocked to sleep in the arms of Joseph, was God and remains God to this day. Is it any wonder that the shepherds went out and spread the word about the good news? Is it any wonder that the wise men bowed in worship before him? That's why he came, folks, to make the Father known to us. To shed light into our dark world of hopelessness. When we follow Jesus, our lives are better. Anybody found that to be true? <laughs> our lives are better and they are brighter because of his light. And so like, for example, Jesus taught us to forgive, right? Well, if you want to know what living in darkness is like, refuse to forgive others. Jesus taught us how to give. But if you want to know what living in darkness is like, well, you just continue to be selfish and self-centered. Jesus taught us how to serve others. But if you want to know what darkness is like, you just live only to please yourself. See, I've seen this happen enough times that I can say with complete confidence and assurance. When you walk with Jesus, you'll make better decisions. <laughs> you'll have better relationships. You experience more victory in your life over sin. Proverbs 4.18 tells us the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. It was Jesus himself speaking of himself 
In John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's interesting that the scholars once again suggest that it could very well be that when Jesus makes the statement, this we do know, that it was towards the end of the festival of lights, uh, one of the festivals that the Jewish people were, were uh, celebrating. Jesus celebrated that. We know it today as Hanukkah. It's the same one. It is believed that at the end of that festival, there were giant menorahs that were being lit during that time. In fact, they were so huge that the light from these big giant menorahs that were lit and burning during the festival could be seen from a long, long ways away. As they were being put out, as the festival is coming to an end, the scholars suggest that it's very possible that that is when Jesus made that statement in John chapter 8. Verse 12, I am the light of the world. And whoever comes to me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is Jesus assuring us that he will be with us and that he will be our guide through anything and everything. And so the ongoing daily decision that we need to make is to live in that light, to follow his way, to move in his direction. And once again, God was making this grand statement to all who would listen, to all who would dare to care, to all who would hear and see. God had come near. Light was piercing the darkness, and he would always be with us. Even in those times when it seems like he's not there, even in those times, folks, when it seems like he's, he's gone off and left you alone, he is never gone. He is always there. He may appear hidden at times, but he is always there, always working, always moving on your behalf and mine. Always. And it just takes faith and trust for us to understand that and embrace that, no matter what we might be going through. Lucado writes something that I, I really like. He says, no day is accidental or incidental. No acts are random or wasted. Look at Jesus' birth at Bethlehem. A king ordered a census. Joseph is forced to travel. Mary is round as a ladybug, <laughs> forced to travel and bounced on the back of a donkey. The hotel was full. The hour was late. The event was one big hassle. Yet, I love this, out of the hassle, hope was born. Yeah, hope was born. And church, it still is. And so when God came, not only did he come as the light of the world, but he came to bring hope 
to all of us who are at one time in our lives hopeless. When the prophet Micah announced hope for the discouraged people of God, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he opened with a surprising statement. He revealed that the promised Messiah would come not from Jerusalem, the royal city from which most original Jewish hearers would have anticipated a king to emerge, the Messiah to come from. But he announces and lets us know prophetically that it would not be Jerusalem, but a place called Bethlehem. Listen to chapter 5, verse 2 of Micah. This is how it reads. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. It was in this small unexpected town that God's work would unfold before his, his very own people. Jerusalem was the prominent city in Israel, right? Continues to be. It was the city of the great King David. It was the location of the temple, and it was the primary focus of God's people. Bethlehem would not have been on anybody's radar at that time. It was, as Micah says, too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's, it's insignificant. It means nothing. Wouldn't have been on anybody's list of probable places. Yet the significance of Bethlehem is found actually in its insignificance. Thinking about the rest of the Bible story, we realize this makes perfect sense because this is how God works time and time and time again. When Goliath taunted the people of Israel, the soldiers of Israel cowered down in fear, didn't they? So what does God do? He used a small, and you got to love this in relation to Mary. He uses a young, insignificant teenage boy from Bethlehem, no less, of all places, to get the job done. When the good news of the Messiah's birth came, we might have expected that the cultural elite of the day would have been the first to hear about it, but no. Instead, as mentioned earlier, God brought the news to a few insignificant shepherds. You got to love this. <laughs> Bethlehem really is rich in history, isn't it? Remember the story of a family that leaves Israel because there's a famine and they go over to a place called Moab and they lose everything. And Naomi has not only lost her two sons, she's lost her husband. It's time to go back looking for more bread. And they go back to Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And you know the story of that because from that, David would come. And from that, Jesus would come, Bethlehem. God just works like this. When he seems to be hidden, when he seems to not be there, he is so there and so working on our behalf. So when the good news breaks out, 
It's good news, isn't it? And this is God's way. It's how he gets things done. It seems to be his, well, I'll refer to as his MO, <laughs> his method of operation. Those who dismiss the message of the Bible often stumble over the fact that God's answer for the world lays in a baby who's born in obscurity. They struggle with that. Well, I suppose they would if they are not familiar with how God does things, right? How God works. But when you stop and think about it, I mean, seriously, when you stop and think about it, who in their right mind would try to create and event a story like this? Nobody. Right? Yet it was into this insignificant place that the Messiah came to rule. Not only in this world as he will and does and will, literally, but even now in our hearts. The one who lay in Bethlehem's trough was the one who was, was the one who was with the, had a never-ending kingdom, which would be the kingdom of all kingdoms. Recognizing the pattern of God's ways in ancient days enables us to recognize the Messiah now and his ways and how he works and moves amongst us. Wow. It allows us to expect to accept the reality of the one upon whom all God's promises rested and who would come and die a humiliating, humiliating death on a cross. It reminds us that this is God's way and always has been. I like to share something that I may have referred to in the past. I, I really don't know for sure at this point, but it's a piece that Charles Swindoll has written many, many years ago. I first came across it in a, in a book that he published, I think back in the late 70s, called Seasons of Life. And it, I, I never grow tired of reading this. I want to share it with you. It says, that first holy night, all eyes were on Augustus, the cynical Caesar who demanded a census so as to determine a measurement to enlarge taxes even further. At such a time, who was interested in a young couple making an 80-mile trip south from Nazareth? What could possibly be more important than Caesar's decisions in Rome or his puppet Herod's edicts in Judea? Who cared about a tiny baby born to an unknown Jewish teenage girl in an obscure town called Bethlehem? In a barn, no less. Well, God did. Without realizing it, mighty Augustus was only an errand boy for the commencement of the fullness of time, as Paul refers to it in Colossians. He was a pawn in the hand of God, a mere piece of lint on the pages of prophecy. And while Rome was busy making history, God arrived. And the world didn't even notice reeling from the wake of Alexander the Great and Herod the Great and Augustus the Great, the world overlooked the baby Jesus. And it still does, doesn't it? 
As in Jesus' day, our times are desperate. Not only that, they are often a distraction from the bigger picture. And so just as the political, economical, and spiritual crisis of the first century set the stage for the fullness of time to occur, so today, in our desperate times, our God is weaving his sovereign tapestry to accomplish his divine will. Times are hard indeed, but they never surprise God. He is still sovereign. He is still enthroned. And so may we not miss or forget who our God is and why he came. And in the midst of the exchanging of gifts that will take place in the next couple of days, may we above all else bring to our king the gift of ourselves. How important it is that our gifts of love and devotion be offered to Christ as we bow in true worship and adoration before him. His coming has made an incredible impact and church are following him also needs to make an incredible impact on the world in which we are living. Today, as we meditate on this truth, let it fill our hearts with awe and with wonder. The same Jesus who walked the earth, who taught and healed, who died and rose again, is the eternal God. This truth assures us of his power, of his presence, and his unchanging nature in our lives. And so may the message of Christ's birth gain influence and bring deeper purpose and meaning in and through your life, not just in these next few days, but all year long. In fact, all lifelong for the rest of our days. May the message of the birth of Christ take root in our hearts and may our hearts be the home and the throne of King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Father, we come before you and we want to say thank you for sending your son. And, and I'm also just moved right now, even in this moment, to, to pray for all of us, myself included, that God, you would forgive us for those times when we have taken you for granted, for those times when we've kind of taken our eyes off of you and we've got them onto ourselves and we've made it all about us rather than making it all about you. Help us, God, to flip the switch, if, that, if I could use that terminology, to get ourselves out of the way, to get our eyes back onto you and allow you to be the eternal God in our lives and in our hearts, ruling and reigning there on the throne of our hearts. It's why you came. May we live for you. May we choose you for the rest of our days in a whole new and fresh way. 
committed, devoted, surrendered. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.